This podcast is recorded live during my weekly Zoom virtual healing circles. Be sure to stick around to the end of the episode to learn more about how you can join me for these live virtual events. Welcome to the Virtual Healing Circle with me, Jen Fable of LiveLifeUnbroken.com. And tonight I want to talk to you about the morphogenetic field. Now this is a big concept, this is a complex concept, and so my job tonight is to break this down into a form that can be usable for you and that can help shed some light on parts of your healing journey that might still be sort of stuck in shadow. So why is this important? This is important because the idea of a morphogenetic field is a framework and a philosophy about human evolution, and it offers a unique perspective that oftentimes we don't have access to, and allowing ourselves to pull this into our journey can allow us to see things in a different light. This is important because it helps to explain some of the phenomenon that we all experience to some degree, but don't really know why or have a good explanation for it. And this is important because it allows you to show up more authentically in your life, especially if you want to show up in a place of leadership and excellence, and you want to shine your light so bright that you ignite the light in others, knowing how this works can be very, very helpful. Now, a little disclaimer here. This information is such that it is still in research mode. It is still being studied, which means at this point, there are a lot of underlying things theories, but not a lot of hard scientific data to back this up. It is still in process of being researched. So some of this information, and I will go through some of the scientific data so that you have the info, um, but a lot of it is still considered in the pseudoscience realm because it doesn't have a lot of scientific backup yet. It is still being studied. That being said, the more we learn about the quantum world, the more we delve into string theory, the closer we get to obtaining the conclusive truth about the nature of human consciousness and therefore the morphogenetic field. So a lot of this information, if you go looking for it, you're going to start to wander down the path of pseudoscience, which is totally fine because frankly, in previous circles, we talked about fairies and dragons, so this shouldn't surprise you. <laughs> so what is the morphogenetic field? So the morphogenetic field is a subset of something called the morphic field, which is defined as this universal database of information. It combines the organic, which means living information, as well as abstract and mental forms. So basically, it is where all the ideas, where all of the archetypes, where all of the information and coding of the universe exist in this cloud of energy called the morphic field. Now, within this field, there is something called the morphogenetic field, which is a hypothetical, biological, and potentially social field, and it contains information necessary for specific living beings. So it is what is considered to be interacting with our bodies to help activate or deactivate, turn off or on certain genetic expressions, which is the study of epigenetics. We're going to get to that in a quick moment. The morphogenetic field is said to influence and be influenced by all living things. And this idea was first coined by a gentleman by the name of Rupert Sheldrake. So Rupert Sheldrake is a British biologist who became interested in how living things took their forms. How is it that you can have two things, like identical twins, with the exact same genetic coding material, 
but somehow they develop differently, even if they're in the same environment. What is it that activates certain gene expression in people? What is it that gives our living beings their forms? Where does this information come from? And Rupert Sheldrake did some research back in the late 60s and early 70s to help discover what are these forces that guide the development of an organism as it grows. So he's basically attempting to understand the mechanics behind epigenetics. Rupert Sheldrake claims that the shapes of living organisms and their behavioral patterns are transmitted through a field of energy that's not visible to the eye. So if we're going to talk about epigenetics, let's talk about what that actually means. So epigenetics is the study of how individual behaviors and the environment cause changes in your reality. So we have this whole debate of nature versus nurture. You can have two human beings with identical DNA, identical genetic code, but they will have different expressions of that based on their environment. So we know that our environment molds us. So epigenetics is the study of the changes that are caused in our biological structure based on what's going on outside of us. Now, unlike genetic changes, if I were to go into a strand of DNA and splice and dice it and change the proteins around, that would actually change the structure of the DNA. But unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible and they don't change the actual structure of the genetic code. Epigenetics is how genes get turned off and on, like little light switches. But whether or not they get turned on and off depends on our environment, depends on the diet we eat, depends on the air that we breathe. And so epigenetics studies how these genes get turned off and on, and we still don't really know. We know that they are affected by our environment, but the how of it is still what's under study, and that's where the morphogenetic field comes in. Now, long before Sheldrake was talking about this stuff, Carl Jung, a psychoanalyst, was talking about a concept called the collective unconscious. And this refers to the idea that there is a segment of the deepest unconscious mind that is genetically inherited. So it's not shaped by your personal experience. Which, yeah, it means that some of the information, some of your habits get passed down to you. Anyone who's ever, you know, hung out with family members at a family reunion can experience this to be true. But what we're still not sure of in the scientific world is how this happens. So the morphogenetic field is one of those theories. The collective unconscious is another one of those theories. So according to Carl Jung, the collective unconscious is said to be common to all human beings. So whereas the morphogenetic field contains information for all living beings, the collective unconscious is for us humans. And it's responsible for those deep-seated beliefs, those instincts. It's why if you look at societies throughout time, there are archetypal patterns. There's the same kind of stories. We talk about the reluctant hero, the wounded healer. These kinds of archetypal patterns and stories exist in all cultures throughout all time. So where does it come from? This inspiration that, that just seems natural to us, this desire to connect with spirituality, where does this innate desire come from if it's not specifically from genetic code and it's not specifically learned for environment, just this deep-seated need that we have to connect is said to what exists in the collective unconscious and the morphogenetic field. Now, while Sigmund Freud believed that the unconscious was a product of purely personal experiences, Jung believed that it was at least partially inherited from the past collective experiences of humanity. And that's the collective unconscious. So you remember that you have a conscious mind. This is the part of you that's aware. This is your thoughts and memories and emotions that are in your awareness. So right now you're likely aware of the sound in my voice. And if you're in circle tonight, you're likely aware of the writing on the screen in front of you. 
and you might not be aware of something like the sensation of your feet on the floor or tucked up under you or wherever your feet are. Only now that I've mentioned your feet, you're noticing your feet. So where was that information a moment ago? It wasn't in your awareness, so it was being processed by your unconscious mind or what Jung referred to as your personal unconscious. So this is all the stuff out of your awareness where you've got temporarily forgotten information, those memories where you're like, oh yeah, or you go to talk to someone and you can't remember the name of a TV show, but then it pops up out of nowhere at three o'clock in the morning. This is also where we stick all the stuff we don't want to deal with. This is where the shadow self lives, which is another concept that Carl Jung talked about. And then deep, 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 deep within us, Carl Jung says that we have something called the collective unconscious. And this is a universal version of our personal unconscious. And it has mental patterns and memory traces which are shared with all other humans. This is that connecting thread. This is why even on a digital platform, we can connect with each other. Because in our biology, there exists this access point, this collective unconscious that is so deep in our programming, it's easy to forget it's there. And when we forget it's there, it's easy to feel isolated. Once we know that we are always connected to this collective unconscious, then loneliness is a choice and solitude is a desire that we seek out. But we can't ever actually convince ourselves ever again that we're alone because we're not. So the collective unconscious is the thread that connects us. It's said to be made up of a collection of knowledge and imagery that every person is born with and is shared by all human beings because of ancestral experience. And again, I'm going to talk about a little bit about the science behind it because I'm a nerd and I like that. And even though we don't know what's actually in the collective unconscious, in moments of crisis, our psyche just seems to be able to tap into it. In the middle of disaster, people have these aha sparks of inspiration passed down to them that connect us to past generations, to our history. Often these threads are expressed through universal concepts, which are called archetypes. And if you want to recap of that, uh, we talked about archetypes way, way back uh, a lot of circles ago. I think we're looking around episode 20-something is all about archetypes, if you want to get caught up on that. Those are the templates. Those are the patterns. If I were to say to you, oh my goodness, that person's such a jock. You can get an idea of what kind of template that person falls into, and that's that template, that's an archetype. And no matter where you are in the world or what language you speak, if you say to someone that person is a jock or whatever the word is in that language, they'll know what you're talking about because there's an archetype for it, and that is what exists in the collective unconscious. Now, from a scientific perspective, we know that fear can travel through generations. Now, I want to preface this by saying that I don't like how the experiments were done because I'm an animal lover. That being said, the results are valid, and this is how the scientific world currently is investigating this, and I think it's still important to talk about. So what they did to see what happens to fear and how these epigenetic genes get expressed and turned on and off, they took a white mouse, and they would condition her to be afraid of a smell. I believe they used cherry blossoms. So what would happen is they would have her smell the cherry blossom smell, and then they would pair that with a non-fatal but unpleasant electric shock, kind of like when you were a kid and you would rub your feet on the floor and zap your siblings. Not pleasant. And this would eventually get to the point where it elicited a fear response in the mouse. Once they had established that, they then bred her, and immediately after birth, they separated the offspring. And then once the offspring were old enough, they exposed them to the cherry blossom smell and found that they showed a fear response. Even though they had no direct interaction with it, nor were they even a glimmer in the eye of the mother mouse. What's really interesting is that their offspring 
the fear response got stronger. It actually went up in subsequent generations. And I believe I read an article a few years ago, I think they've tracked it back now like 10 or 11 generations is how long this lasts. So one traumatic experience can change the genetic expression, can change the epigenetics for generations to come. And this makes sense, right? If like mama cave woman comes out of the cave and there's a mountain lion there and she's like, oh, hi kitty. And the mountain lion attacks her and she barely escapes with her life. It behooves her offspring to be born with a healthy fear of mountain lions so they don't also have to almost die to learn the lesson. So we know that fear somehow travels through generations and we don't quite know the mechanics of it yet. And this is where the morphogenetic field and the morphic field come in. What this also means is that some of the emotions that you're holding on to aren't yours. I work with a lot of people where we clear generational emotions that they realize that that guilt that they feel isn't even theirs. It just kind of got handed down to them. A really interesting study that is ongoing at the moment, and I'm very curious to see uh, where this one goes. There is currently psychiatric research that's looking at the role of bacteria in the collective unconscious. So the gut bacteria in our digestive system, the genes in those bacteria way outnumber the genes in the entire human body. So you're basically being ruled by your gut bacteria. And it's theorized that these bacteria may produce a neuroactive compound, which is part of the collective unconscious and helps regulate human behavior. So that gut instinct we talk about, where we feel that connection instinctively with the people around us, they're now starting to see that there might be a scientific basis for that. And then the best evidence that we currently have for the existence of the morphogenetic field is something called the hundredth monkey experiment. So in 1952, a group of scientists decided they wanted to study the Japanese snow monkey. And between 1952 and 1953, the primatologists would drop off sweet potatoes on the beach for the monkeys to eat which they liked a lot. Uh, unfortunately, the potatoes, oftentimes they rolled all over the sand, they got covered in sand, and the monkeys didn't particularly love the fact that there was sand on the sweet potatoes. And this kind of went on for a while, and then one day in 1953, an 18-month-old female named Emo discovered that she could actually wash her sweet potatoes in the water by the beach. And she went and she taught her family this. She realized, oh, you can wash these, and now you can eat them without all that grit. So she showed her family members how to do it. And then over the course of quite a few years, from 1953 to 1958, they found little pockets of monkeys all over the island who would wash the sweet potatoes, but the majority still were not doing that. And then in 1958, seemingly overnight, suddenly, all the monkeys on the island started washing their sweet potatoes. And it's postulated that it was the hundredth monkey. Now, of course, they don't know the actual number, but that's why it's called the hundredth monkey experiment. So when 99 monkeys were washing their sweet potatoes, it was still in little pockets. And the second that hundredth monkey adopted the behavior, suddenly, literally overnight, every monkey on the entire island started washing their sweet potato. And what's really cool is that monkeys on neighboring islands started washing their sweet potatoes as well. So the theory is, is that when a specific number of the monkeys hit this critical mass, somehow it sparked an ideological breakthrough that spread throughout the colonies beyond space and time. So once this critical mass is reached and a certain number achieves this new awareness, the new idea or the new behavior spreads throughout the entire collective unconscious and the morphogenetic field. This is why I think about it. At what point did drinking and driving become socially unacceptable? 
when did it hit that tipping point? At what point did it go from a bunch of people who believed in it and most people thought they were insane to just becoming the societal norm? What about the messages that finally changed public perception on smoking? We didn't need every single person to adopt it, but at a certain point you hit threshold and then it becomes considered a household name. And in marketing, that threshold is about 13%. Once 13% of a population have adopted an idea, it'll start to spread throughout the morphogenetic field. What this means is that you don't have to change the entire world. You just have to change the sphere of influence. You just have to seed the morphogenetic field with your intentions. You literally just have to shine your light so bright, it ignites the light in others. And one by one by one, you ignite the light in others until it just creates its own chain and goes on without you. It's easy to look at all the problems in the world, but like, I, I can't make a difference. How can I possibly make a difference? This is how we make a difference. By knowing that there is a part of us that is connected, which means we're never alone. By knowing that we influence our sphere, our morphogenetic field, every time we add into it. And yes, this means negative stuff as well. So, you know, use the power for good, Luke. Seed the morphogenetic field with positivity. Feed it with inspiration. Feed it with healing. Shine your light so bright, you ignite the light in others. So some key concepts to remember. Remember that you don't need to change the whole world. You just need to have a positive impact on your sphere of influence, your morphogenetic field, and then let the collective unconscious spread it like wildfire. Remember that your only job really is to shine your light so bright you ignite the light in others. Seed the morphogenetic field with empowering information. Show up how you want to show up in the world, and then watch the magic happen. And remember that the words you use and the life you lead has a measurable and profound impact on the genetic expressions of the encoding embedded in your DNA and the collective unconscious. Which means no matter what stories you might tell yourself in your head, you are anything but insignificant. Your importance here, your purpose here, matters. And as always, I want to remind you to decide you want it more than you're afraid of it. So much do we want it and change the world, and then when we realize that we actually can do it, nine times out of ten, that scares the snot out of us. Yay, human! And just decide you want it more than you're afraid of it. And that's what allows you to keep moving forward and keep shining your light. And, of course, I want to remind you that if you have any questions about anything from tonight's circle or podcast, you are welcome to reach out to me at any time through my website at www.livelifeunbroken.com or through email or through social media. I think I have to re-listen to it. I started taking notes and then I got a little overwhelmed, which is fine. There's so much information on there. It's great. I loved it. That's it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad it resonated with you. And yeah, it is, like I said, it's a big concept and it's kind of one of those concepts that has footing in the biology world. It has footing in the philosophy world it has some footing in psychology then the quantum side of things where we get into the quantum field and potentials and string theory and double slit experiments and all that and how that plays into all of it it's such a multifaceted big concept that i mean the collective unconscious is by definition outside of the grasp of what your thinky thinky self can really handle it's kind of like understanding infinite 
We can understand it as a concept, but to truly get it is more of an instinctual thing, more of a philosophical guiding light about how we can show up in the world with some scientific evidence that proves that we do matter. That how we live our life has an impact, not just directly on me, not just directly on the few people who are in my life, but for generations to come. And since we know that time and space are intimately linked and time as a linear concept is just a human fabrication, which means that when you heal, you heal forward and backward in your generational line. I think is super trippy cool. Do you want to learn more about how you can continue your journey and experience my virtual healing circles in real time? If so, check out livelifeunbroken.com circle and join my free circle membership. Receive weekly reminders, bonus material and recaps, plus special offers, as well as access to my weekly virtual healing circles. If you're ready to leave behind the fears and limitations of the ego, and step into the spiritual life you've long known is waiting for you. You're invited to join me, Jen Fable, for a soul-nourishing journey into the exploration of you, the universe, and all space in between. Take control of your spiritual journey to attain a new level of understanding and connection to yourself and the people in your life. During our time and circle together, I will share with you all the tips and tricks you need to make playing with energy fun, easy, and most of all, effective. Together, we'll learn how to cultivate our inner compass to enable us to walk our path with grace and ease. We'll open the space with a candle meditation, and after, I will share with you my favorite grounding practices and lead you through a circle casting, guided meditation, and breath work, followed by a soul-inspiring gratitude practice. If your soul has been calling out to you and you're ready to tune in and listen, go to www.livelifeunbroken.com circle and register today for your Zoom access information. That's www.livelifeunbroken.com backslash circle, C-I-R-C-L-E. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.